IB Teacher, IB Talk. Teacher Talk. IB Teacher Talk. And so by doing away with tests, I think kids would relax more in their learning and maybe lean in a little bit more because they're not so focused on the test itself. So Rachel, what's our objective for this interview today? I would like to explore different perspectives on assessment and engagement in the design classroom. Hello and welcome to IB Teacher Talk. My name is Dan Lambert. I'm the host and I'm with the wonderful and fantastic. I am Rachel Smith. <laughs> and today we are here with Craig Freelich. He is an IB design teacher. Hi, Craig. Hey, so glad to be on the show. Craig, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm Canadian. I was born and raised, of course, in lovely, slightly COVID-free Canada. And... I have been teaching for almost 27 years. My path towards teaching has been all over the map. That is to say, I used to be, when I first started, a science slash chemistry teacher. Hold on, why slash? Uh, good question. I, I, think, I think slash because if I would have just said science, then that might have alluded to all sorts of different disciplines. But I've dabbled a little bit in middle school science and mostly taught high school chemistry. Are there any subjects that you would secretly like to teach? I want to say language arts, but, but I have to admit it wasn't till later on in my career that I became a strong writer. So... I'm going to say psychology. I'm fascinated by psychology. As you might learn later on in this podcast, my tool of trade lately in the classroom has been immersive virtual reality. So mm -hmm. psychology and some of the things that we can cognitively test in an immersive VR world really fascinate me right now in my career. I really look forward to learning about that. Me too. That's awesome. Why is your subject, why is design the best subject? It is the best, and I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been slightly disappointed and almost somber and very sad during this interview. <laughs> Our world is constantly changing. So one thing that I've learned over my 27-some years of teaching is that, thankfully, the profession is also changing. It used to be that our job was to teach kids to be convergent learners. So by convergent, I mean we get these facts, we shove them in the kids' heads, they memorize those facts, and then they spit them back out on tests. Mm -hmm. Kind of linear. But if we're going to teach kids in a changing world, we need to get them to think divergently. So divergently means that they're going to ask questions, they're going to ponder these questions. In your, in your room, you might have some kids on certain kinds of questions and other kids in different questions, all under sort of the same umbrella or theme. And we are teaching them how to find answers to those questions, which is what design and design thinking is all about. It's a tool or a method to get students to come up with feasible solutions, hopefully empathetic solutions, to big problems in the world. 
Is there a change that you would like to see in your subject as far as the IB goes? This is so timely because uh, this year, at the time of this podcast, this year, most IB teachers didn't have their kids sit IB exams. And what a relief by many of the kids that I saw in the particular school that I was at at the time. And so that would be my biggest change would be to do away with tests. I still think that tests can't really ask the right questions and they can't, tests really can't pull out the necessary conceptual understandings and debates that re we want kids to, um, to believe in. And so by doing away with tests, I think kids would relax more in their learning and maybe lean in a little bit more because they're not so focused on the test itself. I really like the idea of abandoning tests, but I wonder how we could then have checks for learning that are effective. And also, how would we then take the emphasis away from the particular teacher? And as I'm sure you know, we become very invested in our students. And so sometimes I think external moderation is good in terms of taking that personal connection out and looking at the production of the student. So would you like to see something more project-based for assessments? Yeah, project-based would be good. Um, for example, in IB Design and Technology, the kids do a lot of project work. So, you know, they use some fantastic tools like 3D printers and laser cutters to practice the design cycle and hone their skills. And those products that they design, which in some cases are really amazing, they take them home, they might throw them out. Wouldn't it be neat and powerful that they had to, to maybe pitch them or sell them on some online website or store around the world? So we could call it IB Cells. It sounds like you're suggesting that we need to add an element of authenticity to our assessments. And publishing. Absolutely, and well said. And entrepreneurship. Do you have an amusing tale from your classroom that you would be legally okay to share <laughs> on this podcast? So I had been teaching in public schools in Canada for roughly six years, and a job came up at an independent private school. It was my first month, it was September something, and our school was hosting the World Speech and Debate Championship at the school. And I'm like, okay. and. There was no school on Friday. All school classes were formally canceled. We were hosting in all the classrooms of the school these debating rounds. So all the teachers had to sign up to judge one of these debates. So I'm like, no problem. Like, I'm a pretty smart guy. I think I'll do okay. <laughs> so I enter the room that I'm supposed to judge, and the two debaters are about to start. I look at my judge's sheet, and it looks... looks sensible to me. So here we go. All right. So they open up the debate and the topic is about Machiavellian something or other. <laughs> and right away, my jaw drops and a friend of mine who was in the room just watching just totally looked at my face. And I was like, I had no idea who <laughs> Machiavelli was or what Machiavellian this or that. Oh my gosh. And I had to judge this debate. And right then and there, I was like, this is a bit out of my league. I, I love the idea of being in a situation as a teacher when we're usually used to being in control. When you're 
absolutely out of control and you have no idea what's going on. Can I ask you the follow up question of what did you learn from that experience that you could perhaps apply to your teaching or perhaps tell students? Again, it goes back to change. I mentioned how, you know, the world is constantly changing and not only do we want to teach thinking skills related to that, but also behavioral skills. What happens when, you know, you're thrust upon a situation that, you know, you had no time nor wherewithal to prepare for? How do you deal with it? So could I ask you to just right now recount some of the major ideas of Machiavellian thinking for our, th for our listeners on the podcast? <laughs> no. Okay, great. I, you know, then it's funny because I have, I have some notes here and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even remember to this day. Do you have a time where you had a huge mess in your classroom and you had to think on your feet? What did you do? So it was my first year teaching and... As is the case with many first-year teachers, they wear many hats. So I coached a lot that year, and one of the things that I coached was track and field, mostly because no one else would do it. So was I an okay runner? Probably. But did I know a lot about the various disciplines within track and field? No. Had I ever taken on a whole team without an assistant? Absolutely not. So there I was, and we had some great practices, and we had some stellar athletes. So we ended up qualifying like three or four to provincials or, you know, state championships if you're in a, in a different country, maybe. So I go online to enter their names and everything seemed oh, fine. Wow. We booked the bus. The, the travel time was three hours to get to the major city where the championship was being held. I had one wonderful parent come along with me because she wanted to watch her son. So we get there, it's early morning, you know, there's still, because it's Canada, there's still frost on the grass. And I go to the major table where you're supposed to check in. And I go to check in, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm here with my athletes. Can you tell me the name of your team again, sir? Yeah, hi, I'm so-and-so. I've got five athletes participating, we're really excited to get started. Oh no. I don't seem to have you on my list. I'm like, what are you talking about? I registered them online. No, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have that. And I kind of sulked away and I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? They're not registered. And you know, some places they'll be like, no problem, we'll, we'll do this. But this was like a well-oiled, almost like military precision event. And I guess it seemed to me, because I did try and argue a little bit that to try and rearrange all the sort of different trials and add more lanes. Like, apparently, you're not, you can't add lanes <laughs> to the track. To the track. So <laughs> that, that sounds like an analogy. <laughs> so the, the answer was no, I'm not allowed oh. to participate. So my five kids oh. are sitting there. And so the, the moral to this story and was, thankfully, the parent I had was a lawyer. And... This is where I learned the lesson that sometimes if you're not the most skilled in the room, it's okay to eat whatever and allow the most skilled person in the room to take control. So I asked Mrs. So-and-so to come over to help me out at the table, and she did happily, and she convinced them because of her uh, work with law and whatever that it was in the best interest of them 
and the kids that these five kids participate in track and field. So the law can add lanes to a track. <laughs> Apparently so. Somehow, miraculously, you can reshuffle these uh, heats. And, and so there we were. Phew. Not only a lesson for you, but what a lesson for your kids as well, right? To be like, I can ask people for help. I mean, as adults, we still struggle with that. That's and, you, and you were the, the authority figure. And then the students, you talked about modeling earlier, and, and the students would have seen you asking others for help. Mm. And that's excellent modeling for the sort of uh, approach I think we want from all of our students. <laughs> T-O-K? T-O-K. T-O-K. Theory of knowledge. Craig, towards the end of our interviews, we like to delve into the murky world of T-O-K, also known as theory of knowledge. Can we ask you what elements of truth can be gleaned from virtual reality? Virtual reality has progressed significantly since it was first introduced more than a decade ago. Headsets nowadays have gone beyond the Google Cardboard where you put your phone into this cardboard device and you can bob your head left and right. Mm -hmm. They're now at a point where you can move around within the space and you have access to your hands and the controllers in your hands can buzz to provide this haptic feedback to you to the point where it is believed and scientifically proven that your brain has a hard time telling the difference between whether you know the experience that you're having in virtual reality is real or not. One example that I use often with people and students is an application called Ricky's Plank Experience. So in Ricky's Plank Experience, uh, a participant or a user dons their high-end immersive headset, not Google Cardboard, and they enter an elevator. There's nice sort of soft, soothing elevator music in the background. They're taken up to the 60th floor of a high-rise building. Ding, the doors open, and there's a wooden plank in front of them that basically challenge the, challenges the participant to walk on the plank overlooking the city. Many people will reticently start to step out onto this plank. Those that can convince their brain that when they look down that that's not a real cement ground, 60 floors down, might sort of jiggle you, you can add a whole new level of realism to the application or experience or game in that you can put a physical wooden plank on the floor in front of the participant. So now when they go to step in the virtual world on the virtual plank, their foot actually feels in front of them the physical plank and it heightens their sense of embodiment and we call it presence. Presence means that the brain actually thinks it's in this environment and that what's in front of them and sort of tendered for them to experience is actually real. Can I just cut in there? Because that's really where I think the TOK connection mm -hmm. is. If your brain believes that you are on that plank, are you on that plank? You're using these different modes of perception, right? Not only do you have visual, but you now have tactile. Yeah. So your brain is just getting more feedback saying, you really are here. But your, your own understanding from memory or from faith 
in the fact that you're wearing a virtual reality headset should also be a factor that says you know that this is not real in the back of your mind but if your brain believes in it enough then you you have faith in it yeah Book reviews. At the end of our podcast, we always like to ask our guests what book they have been reading and what book they recommend for our audience. Do you have a book for us today? I have a, a couple books. Uh, I'll start with the first one. The first one, which has really lent itself to, the, to our conversation today, is by a gentleman named Mario Livio. So Mario Livio has written a book called Why... What makes us curious? And he does an amazing job of trying to unpack curiosity. You know, he delves into the idea that why are little kids so much more curious than adults? And he gets into sort of the conditions that we as teachers can provide for students, especially ones closer towards adult age, that would lend themselves to questioning, to leaning in and becoming more inquisitive about something. So that's a, a big one. Uh, the second one that I will humbly and almost sheepishly recommend is I just recently published my own book. Wow, and it, it is called Immersive Learning, A Practical Guide to Harnessing Virtual Reality's Superpowers in Education. Mm. And... I say a practical guide because the first half of the book, I would say about 120 pages, gets into and dives into how VR is a pedagogical tool. I think we can easily be uh, drawn in initially to VR because it's such a new and novel tool. But, you know, as is the case with many tools, when the dust settles, what do we have left? And so my book talks a lot about how this tool will have staying power and how one of the hardest things about teaching, especially in the IB, is to try and make concept-based thinking and learning come alive for kids. I think we've talked about this a little bit before. Getting kids to memorize things is pretty easy because they can spit them back to us. But getting th things to kids to think about concepts like identity and changing identity and the forming of a new identity, this isn't easy. And if we think of experiential learning, absolutely. That's why there's so many good field trips, outdoor ed trips. And I believe VR with the right applications can make this easier for teachers and then more importantly for students. Mm. So can we find this book on online stores? Absolutely. So the uh, it's pre-order right now, but you can find it on Amazon.com. Uh, again, you would look for the title, Immersive Learning, A Practical Guide to Harnessing Virtual Reality's Superpowers in Education. Okay, so it's not a mouthful. I think we'll have to put a link to that in the notes. It sounds like teachers of all subjects can learn a lot from your book, which is yeah. one of the things I sound, that sounds fantastic about it. Absolutely. Anyway, thank you so much, Craig, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully the listeners have learned a huge amount, uh, perhaps as much as Rachel and I seem to have learned today. Absolutely. I, I'm already thinking about VR in a Langelet classroom, and that's crazy. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Book 
Student Voices. Student Voices. Hi, Dida. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Not too bad. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Awesome. So my name's Dieter. Um, I took IB in the class of 2020 in Singapore. And other than that, I've lived in Canada for most of my life. And I'm interested in learning things. Excellent. Are you studying in Canada? Yeah, I'll be attending UBC in the fall. Wonderful. So very quickly, do you feel that the IB has prepared you for university? I like to think so. Yeah. Um, I hear from a lot of peers who have taken the IB and then moved on, on to university that the IB has done a very good job of preparing them for sort of the intensity and the, the pace that university flows at. And I think um, I like to think it's also kind of prepared me with a lot of the a lot of the skills that are necessary to perform well in the university environment and kind of function as an individual while still participating in the lectures and all the class components of it. Good. Um, what parts of the IB did you enjoy? You know, what I really liked about the IB was sort of that it's designed with this open-ended nature. Um, and for me, that kind of benefited me on, on two levels. If we look at kind of the macrocosm of the IB as a whole, um, what we see is that the in a lot of educational systems, teachers like to teach to the assessment type. And so for a lot of other high school diploma programs, that means that teachers are often teaching to the test. And while yes, that prepares them very well for the assessment type and it, it allows them to kind of perform well within that specific diploma, it's not necessarily beneficial in teaching us real life skills. And it's not necessarily because, you know, tests as a whole don't necessarily emulate skills outside of a testing environment very well. And so what I really appreciated about the IB was that it placed emphasis on other assessment types. And that sort of incentivized teachers not necessarily to just teach to the test, but to actually teach us how to use and understand the information that we're learning and how to apply it in kind of domains outside of just the final exam that we're going to be taking at the end of the course. Excellent. Can you tell me one moment of inspiration you had from a teacher? I can't think of a moment exactly that comes to mind, but I found that when I did the IB, a lot of my teachers were extremely passionate about the subjects that they were teaching. And I found that really, you know, that really beneficial because when a teacher's passionate and you can tell that that teacher is passionate and really interested in sort of the subject that they're teaching, it sort of incentivizes me to be interested in it as well. And so rather than kind of felt feeling like I'm being taught a curriculum, feeling like I'm being taught from a textbook, I feel like I'm actually learning from the teachers themselves. And I'm kind of diving into the experiences that those teachers have had with that specific subject matter. And I found that really inspiring. Excellent. Um, can you tell me about anything that you found annoying about uh, your experience in the classroom? I, I found it annoying when teachers weren't necessarily flexible because, you know, specifically with the IB and a lot of other advanced programs, students are really, really busy. In the IB, we have to manage our CAS requirements as well as our EE and our TOK and then the six other core courses that we take. And oftentimes the schedules between classes don't necessarily align up very well. Hmm. Um, and so sometimes I found it really annoying when if a bunch of students were really overwhelmed at a particular moment and wanted to move an assessment or adjust sort of some of the criteria, I found it annoying when teachers weren't necessarily flexible and willing to negotiate on those terms. Okay, so teachers need to be more flexible in understanding uh, students' other requirements, yeah? I mean, I just think that at the end of the day, education is sort of a balance between teachers and students. And ultimately, you know, 
in the ideal educational experience, this conversation between teachers and students would be an open door and students be able to request things and teachers be able to request things. And we sort of have a, a symbiotic relationship between the two parties. And I think that maybe being flexible on both hands is sort of the first step towards that. Yeah, I like the word you chose, conversation. I think you're quite right. I think education should be a conversation between both parties. It's it's counterintuitive, but I find one of the best ways to deal with stress is just to kind of sometimes not do anything. Okay. And, you know, I think that especially with the program of, you know, especially with IB, I, I at least found myself always stressed about something. There was never a particular yeah. moment when I didn't really have anything to do. <laughs> Um, and that's sort of escalated by the fact that the courses are two years and you're expected to sort of work and be prepared over the summer. Yeah. And so, you know, I found it beneficial to sometimes just take an evening and say, okay, I'm going to do nothing. And I, then the next day, start with a fresh mind and, and get, get at it. I think that's a great idea, in fact. And I think that's actually good advice for students and not counterintuitive at all. I think it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> just take everything off and just relax. Give yourself some time. Um, Dida, can you tell me something that you wish your teachers knew? I wish teachers knew how much students appreciate the time that they put into classes. Um, and, you know, sometimes you walk into a class and it's really, really apparent that a teacher's put a lot, a lot of, like a lot of time into a particular lecture or into a particular lesson. And I think it's really important for teachers to know that students appreciate that and that students notice that. And maybe it's sort of difficult for them to communicate it without sounding a bit, a bit like a suck up. But um, you know, students really appreciate it when teachers actually put the time in to be prepared and, and, you know, make lessons more than just preparing for a particular assessment, but actually about learning. Excellent. Dida, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And all the best in your future studies. Thank you so much. That was a fascinating interview. I learned so much about walking on planks. But what was, what would be your takeaways from today's interview with Craig Freilich? One of the things that I thought was really interesting was the idea of abandoning tests, possibly using more project-based assessments. But not just that, but getting the kids to publish and getting them to think about their content authentically. Yeah, creating authentic assessments. Wouldn't that be beautiful? <laughs> I also took away that... Even as teachers, even as the role model in the classroom, we can still ask for help. We can still show the kids that we are humans and we can look towards a professional perspective when we're lost. Yeah, and he, he um, Craig talked a lot about the modeling and his story was fantastic because he did model that exact behavior. I really enjoyed that story because I think <laughs> we've hysterical. all had moments like that. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on IB Teacher Talk. Today we learned a lot about virtual reality and walking on planks from IB DP design teacher Craig Freilich. I totally want to walk on the plank. You're too scared. <laughs> no, nope, I'll do it. I know I am. 